0: Wonderful, wonderful. Well, again, it's good to be with you this morning, good to celebrate this Christmas season together with you. If you've got your Bibles, would you mind to open up to Isaiah chapter 9 Uh, this morning? We are in Isaiah's prophecy again this week, as we were last week as Pastor Stephen opened up uh, Isaiah chapter 7 to us. While you're finding Isaiah chapter 9, I just want to make you aware of us. Pastor Stephen kind of alluded to this last week. He mentioned this last week. Want to share a little bit more detail with you this week. Remember he shared this graphic with us, the funnel uh, that he had with us. Learn, live, and lead. Now, when you leave this morning, I want you to walk out by the, uh, the welcome foyer out here, the welcome desk out here, and pick up a copy of one of these postcards, because we're making a few changes to our uh, discipleship program. Remember, Jesus has told us in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, that our job as a church is to make disciples. And this is something we take very seriously here at Boontrail. And so we are adapting, we're changing some things a little bit to help us better create disciples who make disciples, continuing on down through. Of course, it begins as always with congregational worship. This is the centerpiece of what we do week in and week out. We gather together as God's people to worship Him together, to pray, to sing, to read the Word of God, and to proclaim the Word of God together. Then from there we have these following groups, learn, live, and lead. You see, it's a funnel. We want you to go through this funnel together with us in becoming disciples. The learn groups are our Sunday morning groups at 9.30. That's where I want us to focus our attention this morning on those Sunday morning 930 groups that we have here on campus. The live groups, living out the gospel, living out in relationship with one another, we find especially within our home groups. We gather together throughout the week, gather together in homes with one another, to kind of unpack what we've been learning together, doing life together, uh, learning from one another, and growing in the Christian faith, and being very practical in applying the Christian faith. And then our lead groups are our small group discipleship meet. Again, throughout the week, various time, various places, three, four people getting together, studying the Word of God together, holding one another accountable, praying with one another and for one another, and really becoming very intentional in the doing of life together. We want you to be a part of each of these. Congregational worship, Learn groups on Sunday morning. Live groups throughout the week in homes. And the lead groups in those those, uh, small discipleship groups. So we're going to be making a few little changes to our Sunday morning learn groups. We're going to be giving you some options. And we have the options here on these cards. That's why I want you to pick one of these up. We've got four classes that are being offered for our adult ages. Again, this is adult ages. And we're talking about Christianity Applied, Christianity Explored, uh, an inductive Bible study to really get down into the study of God's Word, and then an overview of the Bible as well. And so we've got these four classes. One of them that we're offering is called Read the Bible for Life, how to read your Bible effectively, how to understand the Bible, how to interpret it and apply it into your life. Another class that we're offering is called Why Are We Baptists? What is distinctive about us as Baptists within the Christian faith? So you can learn about what it means to be a Baptist. And then in our overview, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament, an overview of the Old Testament, the promises that God has made. We've been looking at these in in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 9, the promise of a Savior to come, the promises that God has made to His people. Uh, And then our inductive Bible study, a continuation of of the book of Acts. You don't have to sign up for these courses, not necessary for you to do that, You show up on Sunday mornings uh, beginning January 6th. We've got the room numbers on here as well. Would love for you to be a part of these groups. Would love for you to be a part of what's taking place here. Kind of a move away from the age grading system or the life stage system so that we get intergenerational context within one another. So it's not just one group of people going through the same things together, speaking to each other, but it's where generations, interact with one another as to what's going on from place to place. And so we want you to be a part of these. You come be a part of these. Show up in the course that you want to be a part of, and I promise you it will be worth your while and worth your benefit to do that. Again, you can pick these up outside at the welcome desk as you leave this morning. We'll have them next week as well uh, to help you and guide you into which one you want to be a part of. So now, having done that, let's turn our attention to the book of Isaiah again this morning. Isaiah chapter 9. need to give you a little bit of a historical background here because remember, there is always a context that comes to what we read in God's Word. And it is important that we understand the context in order to rightly apply what God says. Isaiah's prophecy, uh, written 700 years before Jesus was born, very tumultuous time in the nation of Israel. In fact, the nation has undergone a civil war. The nation is divided. There is the northern kingdom known as Israel and the southern kingdom known as Judah. So the the nation has been completely divided Even worse than the Civil War, they've they've literally made two nations out of this one nation. The nation is divided. Isaiah is writing here about the year 733 B.C. And in just 11 years, something tragic is going to happen to the northern group of Israel, the nation Israel here. Something devastating is going to happen to them. The armies of Assyria, this this nation, uh, they're going to come down into the northern kingdom and they're going to absolutely devastate the northern kingdom. They're going to take them over in, in this Assyrian conquest of the northern kingdom. And that's just coming in 11 years from when Isaiah is writing this prophecy. Already, the the northern kingdom is beginning to feel some of the oppression of the Assyrian invader. And eventually, they're going to come down and overthrow the entirety of the kingdom. And Isaiah, as he's writing his prophecy, he's writing to this northern kingdom and he's saying to them, Get ready, it's coming. Judgment is coming. Judgment and discipline from God is coming and he's giving them this prophecy that they need to be ready because this nation is coming against them. But then also within that prophecy, he gives them a prophecy about the Lord's rescue and the Lord's salvation of his people as well. And so he says to them, invasion is coming, but the Lord is going to deliver. He's going to rescue his people. In Isaiah chapter 9, you may say, well, what in the world does a coming invasion by Assyria to the northern kingdom of Israel have to do with the Christmas story that we celebrate every year? You wouldn't expect this passage to contain a clear foreshadowing and a prophecy of Jesus Christ. Yet, when you turn over into the New Testament, you find out that the New Testament tells us that this is exactly what Isaiah has prophesied about. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. And, and as you read through this, as we go through this, I want you to notice a few things with me this morning. First of all, notice the, the, the picture that Isaiah uses to describe the plight of Israel. In verses 1 and 2, he uses this, this picture of darkness. And then in verses 3 through 5, look at the way that Isaiah describes the joy of God's people. He does it in two different ways. He talks about a farmer who is expecting a good crop. He looks out and he sees in preparation for harvest, a good crop is coming and he's rejoicing at this. And he also uses the metaphor of a great military victory, whereby the one who was attacking you and coming against you has been overcome and there's joy within that. And then notice how Isaiah pins that hope Uh, on the names, the attributes, the characteristics of this prince who is to come, who is yet to be born, verses 6 and 7. And then finally, as he winds it all up with the last phrase, notice how he attributes all of this hope and all of the joy of Israel to God's own zeal. Let's read it together this morning. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In this prophecy that Isaiah gives, he shows the nature of Israel's distress. And in showing us the nature of Israel's distress, he shows us the nature of our distress as well. He shows us the prospect of Israel's joy. And in showing the prospect of Israel's joy, he shows us the prospect of our joy as well. He shows us the person of Israel's Savior. And in so doing, he shows us the person of our Savior as well. And then finally, he shows the fervency of Israel's God in accomplishing all that he's foretold. And in doing that, he shows us the fervency of our God as well. Notice, first of all, the nature of the distress. Again in verse 1, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, in the former time, He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. One of the things you notice as you walk through Isaiah's prophecy here in these opening verses of chapter 9 is that the language that is used is consistently a past tense language. But remember what I said earlier? Isaiah is writing this prophecy 11 years. Before the Assyrian army ever comes into the northern kingdom, bringing defeat and destruction. The emphasis within this, Isaiah writes as though this is something that has already occurred. The emphasis is on the centrality and the certainty of God's Word to His people. God has decreed it. It is certain. It is sure. It's why you read in verse 2 that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shown. But it's not yet happened. The people haven't yet experienced this darkness. Eleven more years and the fullness of darkness will be experienced. 700 more years, and the light is going to shine. But Isaiah speaks of it as if it has already happened. How can he do that? How can Isaiah possibly speak of these things as though it has already happened? He can do that because it is the Word of God. It is sure. It is reliable. It is trustworthy. It is certain. And when God says something will come to pass, you can be certain it will come to pass. There is a darkness coming for the land of Israel. It's in the context of this military invasion and this national oppression, the Assyrians are coming. But why? Why are the Assyrians coming into uh, Israel to take it over? Well, the Assyrians are coming because of the sin and the idolatry of the nation. They've turned away from God. They have rebelled against Him and they have worshipped other gods. And there is a darkness, not just of a national oppression by some sort of an alien invader, there is a darkness that has been brought about because of sin. They're living in this darkness and will be living more deeply in this darkness. God's judgment on the people For their worshiping of other gods is what Isaiah is talking about here. And their distress is a distress which has been brought about as a result of sin. The darkness of death which is upon them is in fact God's judgment for their idolatry. Friends, understand this morning there is no distress which is deeper than the distress and the misery brought about by sin. It is distressing. It is miserable. And it brings judgment from God to the nation of Israel. Something that that you must understand that this season of the year, you'll often see placards and pins and buttons and all sorts of things proclaiming that Jesus is the reason for the season. And that's true. It is true. Jesus is the reason for the season. But we have to ask the question beyond that, if Jesus is the reason for the season... What's the reason for the reason? Why is there a need for Jesus? What is the point of all of this? It is not just that Jesus is the reason we celebrate Christmas. It is that there is a reason why Jesus had to come into this world. And that reason is the darkness of sin and the misery that comes with it. There must be redemption. There must be deliverance out of this distress and despair. Matthew in the New Testament so beautifully shows how this passage points us back to that truth. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, we read this of Jesus, And leaving Nazareth, He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. The very same regions that Isaiah points to in his prophecy. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So Matthew comes along and he says this prophecy that Isaiah gave, it points not just to the nation of Israel and the Assyrians coming in because of sin and because of the distress and misery, but it ultimately points to Jesus Christ who came as the deliverer from that sin. That's why he says in verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn away from that sin. So Matthew tells us that the person and the preaching of Jesus fulfills this very passage in Isaiah chapter 9. And now, now it begins to make sense how all the other New Testament writers catch on to this theme. Think of Zechariah as he's praying over his son, John. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, verse 79, he speaks of John as one who will give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Simeon when he meets Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus to the temple, he says in Luke chapter 2 that he is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Then you come along to John's glorious gospel, the beginning verses of it, John chapter 1 and verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. This people who are walking in darkness will see this great light. And who is the light? Who is the light shining in the midst of the darkness of our sin and the misery of it? His name is Jesus what Isaiah is telling us all about the New Testament writers all understood that it was Jesus who fulfilled this prophecy that he is the light that came to the people who were walking in darkness it tells you that for the people of Israel their deepest distress was not that they were being oppressed not that they were being occupied by the Assyrian army there was something much deeper the depth of their own depravity and their sinful rebellion against God. A- after all, when Jesus was born, guess who was occupying the land of Palestine? The Romans. When Jesus died some 30 years later, guess who was occupying the land of Palestine? The Romans. Some nearly 40 years later, after Jesus died, was resurrected, and ascended to heaven, guess who it was that burned down the temple? The Romans. What Jesus came to do was not ultimately to liberate Israel from a physical, national oppression. No, Jesus came to give deliverance from something far more serious and more significant. Jesus came to bring deliverance from sin. That's why He came. He tells us in Luke chapter 4 that He came to proclaim good news, to proclaim liberty, to set people at liberty. Some of you today are still walking in that darkness. You're walking in the darkness of your own sin and your rebellion against God. You need to see the light of Jesus Christ. You need to confess faith in Him. What is the nature of the distress? It is sinful rebellion against God. But look secondly at the prospect of joy. In verse 3, Isaiah now turns and he begins speaking to God Himself. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. Isaiah is here telling the people what they will say to God after God has revealed His marvelous salvation. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. Isaiah is saying that God's salvation always brings with it an extension of joy for the people of God. It's the result of God unburdening them from their deepest distress and the darkness in which they were walking. Out of that, out of His deliverance, there will be an increase in joy. Joy in God and joy in the salvation that He has given. Because, friends, listen, the, the salvation of sinners always produces joy in the hearts of God's people. We are sinners who have been saved ourselves from sin. And those who are sinners who have been saved rejoice when we see others who are saved as well. See, this this was such an indictment on Israel in Jesus' day. We read in Matthew's Gospel that that Jesus went out and he was preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is preaching repentance and there are many who are coming to faith in him. One of the things that many of the Israelites hated so much was that many of the Gentiles who were coming to faith in Jesus And in doing that, God's own people, the Israelites, were not rejoicing in the salvation of the Gentiles. And friends, that was a sign that they had not experienced salvation themselves. They wanted this joy. They wanted this salvation. They wanted this redemption for themselves and only for themselves. And so they hoarded it. They held on to it. They were unwilling to release the glorious message that God has sent the Messiah in Jesus and salvation is available now. Can I just ask you just as an aside, what's the greatest joy that you have in this world? What's the greatest joy that you have in this world? I mean, just... Let's let's think of it in in terms of the time of the year that we find ourselves now. Here, Here we stand in the ultimate opportunity to be wrapped up in materialism and commercialism and stuff. What do you take most joy in? Isaiah reminds us here that those who have been shown mercy Take the greatest joy in God as they see Him work salvation in others. Do you take joy in that? Do you take joy when those who are walking in darkness see the light of Christ and they come to faith in Him? Remembering your own salvation, do you take joy in the salvation of others as well? Thirdly, Isaiah points us not only to the nature of the distress, the people are in sinful rebellion and therefore they're in darkness. Not only the prospect of joy in the salvation that God brings, but now they see how God will bring this salvation in the person of the Savior. Look at verse 6 again. Look at the way that Isaiah describes the Savior of the people. For to us a child is born, To us, a son is given. To us, for us, on our behalf. We read, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. The child is born, it speaks so vividly of the humanity of Jesus. But a son is given, speaks to us of the deity of Jesus. God is in the flesh, incarnate with us. Isaiah says that a ruler will be born who will govern us in the best interests of His people. A ruler who will lead and govern for the well-being of His people. Can you imagine a leader like that who is interested not only in self, but is actually interested in the well-being of His people? Isaiah tells us that he will be known as the wonderful counselor. Wonderful and wise. Having the heavenly wisdom in the way that He rules His people. As God, He knows everything you like to have a counselor who knows everything knows everything knows who you are at your deepest level but knows everyone else as well knows the counsel to give you based upon knowing everyone else and what will happen knows all about you he knows your needs the answers to your needs He gives the best counsel. He's able to solve the deepest problems. We're told as well that He is the mighty God, God Almighty in the flesh. When you come back to the New Testament, this is is why you will hear me say from time to time, you read the Old Testament, you can't fully understand the Old Testament without the New Testament, but you really can not understand the New Testament without the Old Testament either. The New Testament writers are all over this prophecy of Isaiah. God Almighty, God in the flesh. John 1, 1 again, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Romans chapter 9, verse 5, Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Titus chapter 2, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The New Testament understands exactly what Isaiah is saying here. The Messiah King is going to be more than human. He's going to be the mighty God in the flesh. You understand that's the miracle of Christmas. Incarnation. God the Son taking on flesh. God with us. Emmanuel. Not just some far off deity. Not someone who is so far removed from us we can never fully know Him, but one who has revealed Himself in His Son Jesus Christ, God with us. Not separated from us. We read as well that He is the everlasting Father. Remember the passage here is about a ruler. One of the metaphors for rulers in the Old Testament is that of a father, a spiritual Father to the people, to the nation. The rulers are to father their people. It's another beautiful description of of how the the Messiah will have this this concern, this care for the spiritual well-being of his flock. It's an assertion that Jesus will rule in a paternal way, in a fatherly way, protecting, providing for His people. And then we read that He is the Prince of Peace. The one who accompanies peace, the one who gives peace, and the one who reigns in peace. The one who makes it possible for you to be at peace with God. And through that to be at peace with one another. Finally notice this very last phrase of verse 7. The fervency of God. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See the hope that Israel has and the hope that we have is sure not because of anything that we will do, but because of the one who is behind that hope. And who is behind that hope? The Lord. You see, here's the thing. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Had Jesus never come, had the way of salvation never been provided. Had God not done this, we would still be lost in our sins, destined for hell apart from Him. There is no hope for our distress apart from Jesus. And the Lord has accomplished in Him what we could never accomplish on our own. All of our goodness, all of our self-righteousness, none of it brings us to a state of being right with God. Only the forgiveness that Jesus has accomplished through His death, burial, and resurrection will make us right with God. It's interesting as you come through these verses, Here's the only statement in this passage that is not in the past tense. All of the others are in the past tense. But here we have this one that is not in the past tense. I want you to see the encouragement that this is for us, church. Yes. The light of Christ has dawned within our hearts. We once were walking in darkness. We've seen the great light. We have trusted in Christ. We have been forgiven and redeemed, and yet we rest and we trust in Him. And still, we live in this fallen world, facing the miseries of sin and its effects and the distress that comes with it. But the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He will bring to completion what He has started. He will complete what He has begun. Salvation will be final. Salvation will be full. And one day we will be with Him. We have now God with us. One day, we will be with God. That's the hope of Isaiah's prophecy. That a Messiah, a Savior, a Redeemer is coming. And now we look back on the other side of Isaiah's prophecy and we see the Messiah, the Savior who has come so that you can be redeemed. So that you can be forgiven. So that you can be made right. Have you? I mean, have you been made right with God? Have you seen the nature of your distress and the darkness in which you walk because of your sin and rebellion against God? Do you see that? Do you see the prospect of joy and what God will do what God has done through the person of the Savior, Jesus Christ? the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. God will bring salvation to those who repent and trust in Him. Father, this day we thank You that Your Word is sure, that Your Word is certain, that there is not one mark within Your Word that we need doubt, but that You have provided salvation for Your people through Jesus Christ. That You have made it possible for those who dwell in darkness to see the great light of hope and salvation in Jesus. Father, I pray today for those who do not know that. Father, I pray, would you please bring conviction to hearts and lives that people might see their need of a Savior, that the day might be this day that they confess faith in Christ. Father, I pray for those of us who are your children that it would be the consummate joy of our lives to share the Gospel with those who are in darkness so that we might rejoice with those who come to faith in Jesus. We pray this in His name. Amen. I invite you to stand this morning. As we stand, we sing together. And If you'd like to know more about what it means to be a follower of Christ, how you can profess faith in Christ, how you can trust Him and follow Him, we would love to begin that conversation with you. If you'd like to come just meet me here, we'll start. If you'd like to know more about what it means to be a member of this church family, we'd love to start that conversation with you. You come as we stand.